know, over the past uh, few weeks, we've been discussing uh, how to conduct ourselves within the family of God and the importance of keeping at the center of our lives and ultimately the center of our church, the gospel. And so therefore we've been going through first and second Timothy, looking, continuing to look at the church in Ephesus and seeing what it looks like within the household of God for us to fear, for us to drift away from the centrality of Jesus and the centrality of the gospel. And so we've seen scripture, scripture speak in chapter 5 um, into particular issues within the Ephesians church, the, the church of Ephesus. And so we've, we've seen in chapter 5 how to care for faithful women, or faithful widows. Uh, we saw last week how to, how to care for faithful pastors. And this week, we're going to talk about what does it mean then to be a faithful slave, a faithful slave. And uh, just confessionally here this morning, man, it has been, it's been difficult in the, the preparation this week because when we're talking about the idea of slavery, um, it, is, it is difficult as an American to imagine any other type of slavery than the 400 years of slavery on American soil. You know, the kind of slaves like George Washington owned. Right? Uh, the kind that civil, uh, the civil war and Abraham Lincoln said to get to liberate. And so it's really difficult for us to understand or when we start looking at the idea of slavery um, from a biblical perspective, perspective without having this connotation in our minds between the Americans and the Africans. See, in African slavery, by force, men, women, and children were taken from their homes for no other reason to be enslaved and then forced to work. They were often uh, split up. They were often beaten. They were abused. They were raped. And, and not even considered to be a part of the human race. Um, these individuals uh, lived in terrible, terrible lives. They lived in terrible conditions. And yet all the while they longed for a hope. Um, inside of Washington, D.C., I'd love to go visit this. I think the Vanderbilt's had the opportunity recently to go to the Museum of the Bible that just recently opened in Washington, D.C. And on display there in the Museum of the Bible is something called the Slave Bible, which was often circulated in early American history because many slave owners professed to be followers of Jesus. And, and for those slaves that could read, they would often provide for them a Bible. And yet what was interesting about that Bible, the slave Bible, is that they would remove all of the sections on liberation and would include all of the terminology about slavery. So the idea of being set free and being set free from the chains of, of slavery uh, would not come to them. It would not provide the hope in which that they needed in their chains. However, by God's grace, a good interpretation of Scripture, it was simultaneously a group of believers and Christians who set out there to free the slaves by using what? The Bible. Okay? And so when we're looking at these sorts of things and talking about um, in Scripture, what does it mean to be a slave, we've got to really try to turn off our filter of American history. Because there are some likenesses, but then there are some major differences. And so today we're going to talk about, man, what does it mean to be a faithful slave? Um, I believe that the term slave is used um, over 700 times in the scripture. And I'm going to put my, my cards out on the table here today is that what you're not going to find a lot of is the idea of abolishing slavery. You won't find a lot of that mentality. But what we don't often find, and what often the new atheists, who one of their compelling arguments against the scripture and the God that we love is, is the viewpoint that Scripture takes on slavery and its use of slavery. And so there is a tension in the room because, again, the Bible mentions it 
a lot. Jesus talks about it. Paul talks about it. The Old Testament is just riddled with this idea in this culture of slavery. And yet, how did one become a slave inside of Scripture? The most common way that a person would become a slave inside of Scripture was often that they were captured in war. You have to understand that they didn't have all the government assistance that we did. They don't have these big buildings, ginormous, you know, thousands of square foot with a, you know, a cafeteria, weight rooms in your own private room called a prison, okay? This is very different culture. This is ancient history there. And so often when a, a, a conquering nation would take over a group of people, and I'm sure that there was right cause sometimes in doing this, and there was unjust cause in doing this sometimes, but whatever the cause was, when a person or a group of people, a nation would take over a, another nation, um, there were times where everyone was slaughtered, and yet there were times where they would take the people as their slaves. We see this in Genesis chapter 14, 21. We see to other people that there is the exchange, the selling of slaves. Were those done by those captured by war? I'm sure it was. Were there ever occasions where that wasn't the case? I'm sure that it was the case. But people would be you know, sold into slavery in Genesis chapter 17, verse 12. They were born into slavery. If you were um, parents, if they were slaves, then you were also considered to be a slave. In Genesis 15, 13, there were restitution for a crime. You did something against someone, and instead of them killing you, or you being put in prison for life, um, you could make a deal with them. Hey, I will, I will be your slave. I will pay off whatever it is, this crime that I have done to you. Um, we see the restitution for debt in 2 Kings chapter 4, where, where people were not able to pay off their monetary debt. And so what would they say? They would say things like, Hey, I, I don't have the money to take care of this, but I will work for you in doing this. It's, it's common to the, the, you know, the American joke of sitting at the, the restaurant and forgetting your wallet and saying things, uh, I guess I'm going to have to do the dishes, right? I mean, you're paying off your debt is what you're doing. If you owe money right now, if you're in any kind of debt, Scripture would say that you are a slave to the lender. Hello, fellow slaves. This is what scripture we see. We, we see self sell into slavery inside the Bible. In Leviticus chapter 25, you see people literally say, it, it is better for me to be a slave. So they would physically give up themselves, hey, I want to become your slave. We would also see it again in a terrible, terrible manner, a kidnapping of slaves. Several main characters inside of Scripture, guess what we see them as? Slaves. By the time you crack open the book of Exodus, the people, the Israelite people, I think have been in slavery for 400 years. We, we talk about Daniel. What is he? A slave. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And I know all of you think those are your cousins' names, but I promise you they're not. They're Israelites. What do we see them as? They're, they're slaves. They're slaves. Major characters throughout the Scripture see themselves in a cultural relevant position known as a slave. Now, now we need to understand something, that within Scripture we see slavery as an approved system. Now, we're not talking about the extreme cases of like, like kidnapping and all these sorts of things, but within all of the cultures in ancient history, I wasn't able to find any ancient culture that didn't support within its economic system the idea of, of slavery. Whole nations went, again, from being slaves to doing what? Owning slaves. This happened over and over and over again. There are tons of verses of how it is to be conducted and the punishment for when it is not done, com correct, done correctly. Unlike in American history, most slaves, unless a prisoner of war, and we have to, again, re have to think about this through perspective. 
And you would say things like, well, aren't some of these people innocent, right? They're just the collateral damage of war. And we would have to say to you, yes, they are. But it's also coming from an American who, in what, in the 1940s, dropped two bombs on two foreign countries, killing lots of, quote-unquote, innocent bystanders to the war. Now, I'm not here to debate whether or not that was a good choice or not. Okay? But the idea is, do we incinerate people, or is it better to actually show some measure of compassion, some measure of giving them life, in order to make people who were pagan worshipers, in many cases, in in pagan culture, in ancient cities and cultures, guess what? There were no regulations. They were just property to do as you saw fit to them. But with inside of Judaism... There were lots of regulations on, on this, this mindset. Unlike in American history, most slaves, again, unless like a prisoner of war, were treated very well compared to those who were not slaves. Masters were required to feed, provide shelter, protect, and pay their slaves. They could get married. Slaves, they could get married. They, slaves could have kids. Um, and, and guess what? Every wife, every child was to be taken care of by that master. If a Jew owned another Jew for whatever reason, they were indebted to them, they were in slavery to them, then we have what the scripture calls the year of Jubilee. And at the year of Jubilee, every seven years, you could re-up, if you wanted to, back into slavery, or guess what the master had to do? set you free, and give you a bunch of stuff in that freedom, all right? We see this, what is it, with the story of Jacob, right? He, he gives himself to seven years of service. He works out a deal, right? And that deal goes sour with the old wife, old Rachel, right? So what's he do? I'm going to give myself seven more years to this, this service. We, we see this pattern, According, I would encourage you, if you're really interested in this kind of biblical perspective, I've had to lean a lot on some people way smarter than I am this week. Um, and John MacArthur wrote a book called Slave, and it, it, it talks a lot about this. And even from his research, he, he would say that um, from even a Jew to non-Jew, every seven years that Jew got to be set free and given a bunch of stuff, but that even within um, a Jew toward a, a pagan worshiper, that they would be set free in 50 years. So there, there were these, these regulations. Let me read this to you. Slaves during biblical times were members of the master's household. And as such, enjoy the benefit and are liable to the duty of keeping the Sabbath and holidays. They must be circumcised. They must partake in the Passover. Um, They partake of the Passover sacrifices when circumcised. They are distinguished from resident hirelings and may inherit the master's estate when there is no direct issue. All right? So you can essentially, when the master dies, if you're a slave... Be given everything that brother owns, all right? Perhaps, um, even if you do have an older son who would um, be inheriting the birthright, um, the master could choose to give that to the slave. We see that take place in Proverbs 17 too. Although slaves are the master's property, they may acquire and hold property of their own. A slave who prospers, can can afford it, may, may redeem himself. Um, instances of property held by slaves are often found in, in 2 Samuel chapter 9 and 16 and 19 and, and chapter 30 and in 1 Samuel chapter 9 verse 8. The killing of a slave was punishable in the same way as if any free man, even if the act committed by his master. So in essence, if, if you kill your slave, what's going to happen to you? You are going to be killed. We have to also understand that within this context, many of the jobs that we have in this room, such as being a teacher, being a doctor, being a skilled laborer, those were all done by slaves in many, many, many cases. Let us not forget the story of Joseph. story of Joseph found in the book of Genesis. His brothers hate him, right? And they 
kidnap him, which is, is all evil. And what do they do? They sell their brother, Joseph, into what? Slavery. Right? They sell Joseph. This is an evil, deplorable act. And yet, what do we see take place? If, if Joseph is not sold into slavery in the book of Genesis, then guess what happens to him and his family? Every one of them die. Right? We see in the story of Joseph what happens. God's hand is upon this man, and though he starts out as a slave, by the end of the story, sits on a throne next to Pharaoh and is considered to be the, the most or second most powerful person really on the planet during this time. From a slave to a ruler. Okay, We don't think about that in regards to American slavery, do we? We can't imagine a man in the deep south in Georgia and during that period of time becoming a slave or being sold and kidnapped, sold into slavery, beaten beyond recognition, and within eight years of that or 40 years of that becoming president of the United States, right? We can't make that connection. And so it's, it's tough for us to see the differences and, and here's the deal. Was there ever forced enslavement? Man, I, I'm sure that there was. Did it ever go sour? Yes, I'm sure that it is. Again, the, the Scripture isn't necessarily condoning the, this, it's not condoning at all, this brutal nature within slavery. It's speaking into this fallen, disgusting culture And yet, within that culture, there is this framework of, I think what we can say is healthy, right, slavery. We just don't use those terminologies. All right? I heard a guy say one time that it's often equivalent to um, these guys that's in the NBA right now. You've got all these contracts that are about to start taking place. Right, And there are certain things that you can and cannot do once that you have signed that contract. You are doing a task. Yes, you are being paid a great amount of money, but, but that is also a, a form within a biblical framework of slavery. There are tons of things. There are liberties that that person gives up. Same can be said about a person who signs up for the military. Inside the military, they are trained, they're given a job, they're also paid, and yet there are very strict guidelines for what that person can and cannot do. You are essentially owned by the United States government, and if you try to seek freedom from that, then there are lots of bad things that happen to you, and there are lots of bad things that are said about you. So we see this in this kind of economic system within uh, the scripture. And that is not to take away from the abusive forms. All right? But, but like the, the subject of divorce, does God hate divorce? Yes, he does. And yet, what do we see him do inside the scripture? Culturally, you get divorced about anything. Right? Biblically speaking, though, what's it do? It regulates it. And, and likewise, very similarly to that, is this concept of slavery. In 1 Timothy, did you know that Paul talks about slavery in another place? If you have your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 1. And Paul is talking about all these people who are false teachers, right? And, and Paul gives this list He's warning them, warning them, warning them, warning them. And and then he gives this this list. And it it starts in verse 8. He says, Now we know that the law is good if anyone uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and the disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, in slavers. Do you see that? Liars, perjurers, and, and whoever else is contrary to sound doctrine. Slavery is, 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 from American concept for sure, is not the way it is supposed to be. 
all men and women are created in the image of God. And yet when you see this passage, and Paul is saying, man, the law is giving to regulate people who would do wrong. And he's saying that that term enslavers is the idea of, of stealing a person, kidnapping a person, and then turning them and forcing them then to work for you. That is very different than the idea of I owe you a debt and this is the way I'm going to pay you. But Paul says, man, enslaving in that manner is a terrible, terrible thing. Be be cautious. You are lawless. It is contrary to sound doctrine to uh, embrace and inherit and promote such sin as enslavement. This is a terrible thing. And yet, what does he say here in this passage in 1 Timothy chapter 6, where we begin today? Let all who are under the yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of honor so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Let's let's pause there just for a moment. When we see this passage, again, Paul naturally addresses the congregation because what's in the congregation there are widows there are unfaithful elders there are faithful elders and there are slaves and masters again remove the filter of an american mindset the closest that we have to this understanding is a boss an employer and an employee relationship That's the closest illustration that we can come within our culture. And yet Paul, again, he addresses it here in 1 Timothy. And he's telling these people, man, if if you find yourself culturally a slave, then you need to be a faithful slave to that master. Notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say run and try to get to freedom. Why? Because there are many cases, again, where this was a right and just relationship. They were being often taken care of. They were being um, welcomed even as part of the family in many, many, many cases. This wasn't based on a skin tone. Do you understand that? This wasn't based on a skin tone. Paul will mention this over and over in several of his letters. In Ephesians 6, 5, he says, bond servants, obey your earthly masters. Colossians 3, 22, bond servants obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. In 1 Peter, he says this in chapter 2, Peter does, servants be subject to your masters. Freedom in Christ does not negate the necessity for us to be good employees. And there seems to have been a problem in many of these churches in regards to that mind frame. But now that they are in Christ... You can be a terrible employee. That you are allowed then to do terrible work. And so Paul and Peter are both saying, hey, no, 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 no. (laughs) That is not how this is supposed to work. That if you are working for somebody, you're to obey them. You're to obey whatever your earthly masters say. You're to be subject to them. And this this freedom in Christ does not give us freedom not to work, but yet... The Bible would tell us that if a man doesn't work, he does not eat. The encouragement is to work. And it appears as though there's some implications, and we can even talk about some implications if we had more time in what's First Thessalonians, who believe that Jesus was going to come back at any moment. And there's kind of this understanding or this, this, this kind of um, culture that's happened in some of the churches where they've just kind of sold all their stuff and they're sitting on the sides of the hills, just waiting on Jesus to return, Right? So it's this ability or this thoughts process is because I'm in Jesus, then he's just going to provide for my every meal that I'll just wake up to manna every morning. And yet, what is the Bible telling us? And he tells us here that, man, this, this bond servant, which would be better translated as slave, let all those who are under a yoke as a slave regard their masters as worthy of all honor. There's that word again, honor. We're to honor faithful widows. We're to honor faithful pastors 
And we are to honor faithful or be faithful toward our employers. And so we see this. Faithful slaves honor their masters. Faithful employees honor their bosses. They honor their leaders. They respect them. Okay? Now we've covered this several times. What, again, what does this mean to honor them? And that you are to have in high esteem your boss, your employers, who, whoever is, is writing your check, brothers and sisters. If you're a follower of Jesus, then, then you should be honoring them. And it gives us a caveat of, of why is this so important? What is at stake here? Well, let's get back to the word. Regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. What is he telling us? Faithful slaves work hard so the gospel can be seen and heard. What do faithful slaves do? What should you and I do as employees? Man, we should be working hard in honor to honor our boss, honor our master, honor, uh, honor our employer. In another way, and what, what is at stake here is, is literally through our work is that the gospel is at stake. The great commission is at stake, especially among a non-believer. That our, our bosses should be saying, man, there is something different about you. There's something a different about you. you you're, the, you're the best teacher that we have in all of Warren County Public Schools. You're, you're, you're the, the best um, Christian chicken maker. Right? That's Chick-fil-A. Closed on Sunday. You're the very best. Why is it that, that you work so hard without grumbling, without complaining? Students, look at me. This includes you. If you are capable of making A's, you should. It is an act of worship as unto the Lord. It is, a, it is an opportunity for you to worship Jesus through arithmetic and through writing and through learning of the sciences to see an almighty God at work in, in every piece of literature, in every art that hangs upon a wall as you look at the symphonies inside of music class that you are physically having an opportunity to worship an almighty God through your education, not only for yourself, but for that unbelieving teacher, for that unbelieving boss. What is at stake here, ladies and gentlemen? If we are bad employees, disgruntled employees, gossiping employees, the gospel is at stake. It's kind of like the quintessential, here in about a couple of hours, every restaurant here, every waiter and waitress hates it. They hate Sundays. We're cheap. We demand a whole lot of things. We don't tip well. We often will complain. And this, what does it do? What's at stake when we do that? The gospel. The gospel is at stake. Why? Because God has placed you in that position. Every one of us, brothers and sisters, we have got to get this at Mission Church. And I'm going to ask you, I ask you not this as a, a, as a placement of guilt, but of a place of evaluation. It, it, inside of your job, within the last 12 months, can you pinpoint a moment where you shared the gospel? Can you pinpoint a moment where you have shared the gospel with a neighbor, a coworker, someone sitting in the cubicle next to you? Where there is no question about that brother or sister. Man, there is something different about them. They love Jesus. They're always talking about Jesus. They, they love people. They don't get caught up in the, the office gossip. They try to think good of their employer. They try to work together. I mean, our desires as followers of Jesus is that, that we should be the, the very best employees wherever that is that we find ourselves working. 
that we shouldn't steal from the company. And that includes a paperclip or sucking face with your phone. What are you called to do? What are we called to do? Worthy of all honor, so that in the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. We see another glimpse of this in the marriage covenant. Remember, isn't it in Peter where uh, Peter tells a wife, an unbeliever, don't nag him to death. What are you supposed to do? Be faithful to an unfaithful husband. Why? In hopes that 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 brother gets saved. Right? And that's what we are called to do as, as long as that master or that boss isn't asking us to do something illegal or something that goes against the Scripture because we have a true and better master, which we'll get to in just a moment. But the heartbeat here is that, man, as, as, as long as it is, you know, respectable, as respectable of my family, it, it does not go against my conscience or, or what the Scripture says before me, then, man, I need to obey and submit to this brother, to this sister, to this friend, to this man, this female. It doesn't matter if they're a Christian or they're a non-Christian, but my hope is through my work and through my word that I will share the gospel and live out the gospel before them. This is the main concept that, Paul is getting to. Verse 2, those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. It gives the appearance here that within Christendom um, is that there was this mind frame and this thing that began to take place um, that, that Christians were working for other Christians. And so they began to believe that they could be lazy that they didn't have to work as hard. Because, man, Galen, he'll forgive me. He doesn't mind if I'm late. Grace. He's going to love me no matter what. We're bros. I work for him. Right? I can do, you know, whatever I really want to do. And Paul is speaking against that. Don't take liberty in that. You don't have the liberty to do that. But even more so, if they're a Christian, you should be working even harder for them. Why? Because who's reaping the benefit of it? Your very brother, your very sister. Again, these family dynamics within the church, you guys, are not symbolic. They are reality. They're reality. What's at stake? Again, the Great Commission. The calling upon our lives. Your, your 9 to 5 is not your punishment. Your 9 to 5 is your mission field. Every one of you, if you are followers of Jesus, are ministers. Every one of you are disciple makers. And God removes you from the home, many of you, every day in order to engage that. And from those of which get to work from home, then you're to do that in your home and in your neighborhood. It's not an excuse not to engage in missions. But even more the while that this should be our heartbeat is that through this work, and I get all the time, well, I'm going to lose my job. Who's your master? Who's your master? I understand that there, there are certain situations that make that very hard. But here's the deal, brothers and sisters. If you're working out good relationships, if you're building good relationships with people at your work, and they're noticing something different about you, and when the opportunity is provided for you to speak about godly things and about Christ and about, about your convictions, and then you call them on a Friday night, and you're not the white shrewd from the office, all right, which a lot of Christians act like in the office, if you've not seen The Office, I'm not suggesting you watch it, but it is rather good. But when, when you're Jim from The Office, and he, brother calls you on Friday night and said, hey, let's go hang out, that's the opportunity. All right? So, so maybe it doesn't happen, and you get out the little you know, track during you're supposed to be working, and you get out the track and, and start going through that, but you have breaks, you have lunch breaks, and you have lots of other opportunities called the weekend for you to engage with the people that you've been building relationships 
all week long. We spend more time with these people than we do our own families. And you think that's punishment? It's by design. That's why Jesus looks at Peter, who's a fisherman, and says what? I will make you a fisher of men. I'll make you a fisher. He uses his employment. He uses his cultural status in order to provide opportunity for the gospel to move forward. Now, I want to transition here toward the end. I believe that slavery is a physical parable of a much deeper spiritual truth. I believe that slavery is a physical parable of a much deeper spiritual truth. The first one being, and I'm going to read several scriptures here to you today, and I'm, ask, I'm, I'm, I'm asking the Lord, this is actual prayer, Lord, I, I'm praying that you will help us not become distracted, but that the, the physical word of God would, would be like a warm blanket on a cold soul in this room. We're going to let the Bible preach the Bible. I believe that slavery is a physical parable of a much deeper spiritual truth. The first thing is, is that we are all slaves to sin. We are slaves to sin. In John chapter 8, verse 33 through 35, they answered him, we are offspring of Abraham, and, and they have never been enslaved to anyone. These are the Jews trying to be arrogant. And he says, how is it that you say you will become free? And Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever, for the son remains forever. We can comb through Scripture and see over and over again this, this deeply attached and, and wretchedness that, that sin has upon us. That we are slaves to it. Brothers and sisters, we must understand the, the depths of some theological truth here. That the idea and concept of American free will is not a free will that we see inside of Scripture. Man is not completely free. There is a freedom of the will, and yet that freedom of the will is always tainted by your very nature. And what is that? Being a slave to sin. The only one who ultimately has free will is God. He does. He has free will in the way in which Americans love to paint. And I've said it across many a table, people getting ticked off with the Bible, talking about free will. And I often get accused of not believing in free will. No, I do believe in free will. I will freely choose sin 100% of the time. Why? Because I am a slave to it. Jesus says, if you do it, you're, you're a slave to this. And yet, what does the Bible tell us? That the gospel is for slaves. Even looking at this, isn't this a powerful picture of a brother and sister in Christ sitting in the same worship gathering. Isn't it the book of Philemon, right? Where Paul is in prison and a runaway slave, Onesimus, isn't that his name? Comes to Paul. And Paul shares the gospel with this unbelieving slave. And Jesus saves him. And Paul is writing to his owner, Philemon. And he doesn't say, he doesn't say, guess what he doesn't say? He doesn't say, set Onesimus free. Because Onesimus may have a debt he needs to pay the brother back. And that's the right and gracious thing for him to do. But Paul does say, but when, when he does come back, welcome him as a brother. Slaves in this room, slaves to sin. Aren't you glad this morning that the gospel is for slaves? See, sin has left us shackled to deadly things. Everyone of us in this room are dopamine addicts. It's the same uh, chemical in our body that's released when you do dope. Is the same thing that happens inside your body every time you get an Instagram like. It's dopamine. We're dopamine addicts. We're constantly checking these things. We're, we're addicts to pleasure, are we not? 
We're addicts to entertainment. I've said this before, but now even while we watch TV, what are we doing? We're playing games or looking at stuff on our phones while simultaneously, because the entertainment enough on our screens is not enough, so we have to have two screen experiences. We're in constant need for stimulation. I mean, our family loves some Chick-fil-A, but one of the things I don't understand about my daughter is that she loves the, the little chicken nuggets there at Chick-fil-A. But you've got to make sure that you have Chick-fil-A ranch or she's not eating them. Even if you go to the refrigerator and open it up and say, well, we've got ranch right here. There you go. You know what that's called? Insanity. That is insane. One flavor of ice cream is not enough. We need 31 of them beautiful things. I want every, I want a scoop of them all. Give me a big bowl. Right? I mean, one thing's for certain, ain't nobody starving in Bowling Green. We got a restaurant, a mattress store on every corner. We're compelled, and then we'll say things like, there's nothing to do in Bowling Green. There's nothing to eat. I'm tired of all these places. Really? Do you understand this? We are, we are shackled to these things, and yet the gospel is for slaves. Listen to this, Romans chapter 6, verse 14 through 16. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under the law but under the grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you were once slaves to sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of the teaching to which you were committed and having been set free from sin having become slaves of righteousness I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. Thank you, Paul. Thank you, Holy Spirit. For just as you were once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves to sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at the time from the things of which you are now ashamed? From the end, those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification in its end, eternal life. Thank you, Jesus. For the wage of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is good news for slaves. Paul will say in Galatians, there's neither Jew nor or Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's neither male nor female, for all are one in Christ Jesus. Why? Because the early beliefs were that the gospel was only for certain groups of people. And yet, what does the Bible tell us? That the, the gospel is for us. He goes on in Galatians 4, I, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child is, is no different from the slave, though he is the owner of everything, but he is under the guardians and the managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Sons, and because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into the hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Galatians chapter 5, verse 1 and 3, for freedom in Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. Brothers and sisters, since it's now like 90 degrees at the spring, May you be cooled off by the richness of that truth. This is a puny illustration, but it was the best one I could come up with. You ever seen a ball and chain? And no, I'm not talking about your wife. That is so disrespectful. Do not say that. That is so disrespectful to say that. 
but an actual ball and chain. And I want you to imagine with me just for a moment that tied to the, the very center of your being, your very heart, is a long, heavy chain in a big ball. Pre-Jesus, you have been trying to, to do your very best to, to move about this world as it is. And yet you have not gotten very far. And it has led to starvation of the Spirit. It has led to atrophy of your spiritual muscles. You're dying a slow, painful death. And yet the Gospel... It's so beautiful and magnificent that what Jesus reminds us of is that when he, when he saves us, what does he do? He, he, he comes and he, and he picks up that heavy ball. And when he picks up that heavy ball, guess what? The rest of your life, you're, you're still drawn to it. But because someone else is carrying the weight, what does that enable you to do? To, to, to roam about the cabin, to, to move about. And as you're walking, he's slowly chipping away at the weight. And as you're growing older and maturing in God's word, both being a hearer and a doer, that ball is getting smaller and smaller and smaller, which only liberates you the most. That's why you're, if you're the oldest and, and the following the Jesus, the most, you should be the most Christ-like people in this room because he's been chiseling away in sanctification all of the things that were once holding you down, all the temptations that you're still, yesterday we were having a, a, a family moment with my, my daughter, I was trying to, I'm, I'm, I'm parenting Phil, I was the mistake and I felt so bad about it that you know what my chain was connected to? My refrigerator All I wanted to do was eat yesterday. It was still there. The temptation was still there. But when you understand, like, like Jesus has got it, and he's far better than that, whatever that drink, that pornography, that lying, stealing popularity, that money, whatever it is, you fill in your blank of what you run to when you get really emotional, and I'm telling you, that will tell you what you are enslaved to. It can be a video game, a movie. It can be a man, a woman. It can be a plethora of things. But when things get really bad, or you get really down or emotional, what do you find yourself gravitating to? And for those of us in Christ, when we turn to grab that ball and want to pick it up ourselves, may we pray and turn and see that the person and work of Jesus is standing there and he is carrying all of the weight of it and he's looking at you and saying, it is not worth it. But I am. I am. I am the great I am. Why? Because our master became a slave. In Philippians 2, 2 through 11, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in this scripture, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and, and of one mind, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than others. Let each of you not only to his own interest, but to the interests of, his, of others. Have the mind, this mind among you, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not equate equality with God, a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, which is slave, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We are slaves to sin. The gospel is for slaves. Our master took our place in slavery. Him coming in flesh alone. 
is just in and of itself is bondage to him. And yet he comes, he takes the whip, he takes the, the beating, he was sold for a price. He is, he is mocked. He is all these things. Why? So that slaves can become sons and that the realization of sons can declare in great delight, I am a slave of Jesus. And that's why Paul says over and over, he starts out his letters, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ. I, Paul, a bondservant of Christ. That's why James, the brother of Jesus, when he writes his letter, what will he say? I, James, a servant, a slave of Christ Jesus, our Lord. Brothers and sisters, this morning, do you know this Jesus? What are you a slave to? Who's your master? And if you are proclaiming Jesus, then the fruit and evidence of that should be in every corridor of you and our existence especially where you spend most of your time. And that's at your job. We can be slaves. We are slaves, made sons, who desire to be slaves again because we realize the true and better master, Jesus, is far better and has more for us than any plan we could ever design for ourselves. So we give up everything we sell everything to buy a field where the treasure lies so that one day our master will look at us and say well done my good and faithful slave let's pray